Um, I've felt for some time that it's time for Niche to have a journal. This is a thriving intellectual community. It does a very good job of communicating the relevance of environmental history to the public. Introducing Papers in Canadian History and Environment. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 59 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Niche recently announced the establishment of a new publication, Papers in Canadian History and Environment. This is a scholar-led, open-access, peer-reviewed web publication for long-form research papers that explore any aspect of the intersections of nature, society, and the Canadian past. For quite some time now, Niche has published short-form writing in blog articles and book reviews. We've also published this podcast and a video series. Now, Niche is publishing full scholarly research papers. Each paper goes through a double-blind peer review process under the editorial management of three editors. We will publish those papers in both HTML and PDF formats under Creative Commons licenses, and they'll be free to download and share just as easy as it is to download and share this podcast. In partnership with York University Libraries, all papers will be permanently stored and archived in York Space, the digital repository of York University. We are really excited about this new publication. I'm going to be one of the three editors of Papers in Canadian History and Environment. And to let you know more about the publication, I'll introduce you to the other two editors. Uh, Jennifer Bonnell, Department of History, York University. Owen Temby, Department of Political Science, the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. And I'm Sean Karaj at York University as well. Um, I'm glad that the two of you were able to sit down and, and talk Uh, with me about the upcoming release of Papers in Canadian History and Environment. I wanted listeners to get a chance to hear directly from the three editors who are editing this new publication uh, to learn more about uh, what our objectives are for the publication and why we're doing this in the first place. So I just thought I'd open the floor to some general discussion about why we started the paper series and, uh, and what we hope uh, it will grow into. Um, and maybe, uh, Jennifer, if you want to take first crack at, crack at this. Yeah, I think um, moving from our um, successful experience with the University of Calgary Press with uh, the book series in Canadian History and Environment and that experiment with open access publishing that made those titles um, accessible and freely downloadable to all, I think that really started the momentum here and being one of the editors in that series, I was really excited to see um, material made so immediately accessible and how that um, influenced its, its ability to be, to be used in teaching um, and, and beyond the as well. So I think that was, that was certainly one of the um, early uh, indicators of, that, that we could do something like this with Niche. Also picking up on on Niche's reach in terms of the blog articles that we published, I think we've really laid the groundwork for um, a longer paper series that will really um, receive a wide readership. So uh, I think there was there was great excitement to to begin thinking about launching something like this and giving uh, creating an alternate 
publishing forum for research um, in environmental history in Canada and beyond. And, and I think that's really the moment we're at now. And I'll, I'll leave some of the other points to others because there's, there's much to say here. <laughs> But that's a great first point. The book series with University Calgary Press really laid the groundwork for proving that an open access publication was possible and what the value of that was. Um, and certainly for me in my teaching, it's been uh, hugely important to be able to send students directly to chapters in that series uh, and to have them be able to access it immediately um, and to be able yeah. to share it widely. Now, Owen, you uh, edit uh, another journal. Um, you edit uh, Urban History Review, and you have um, quite a bit of experience um, editing uh, academic work. Um, do you want to speak a little bit about uh, what you see in this new publication and what your goals or objectives are? Sure. Well, it's it's the case that Niche has a model that works, and we've seen it with the University of Calgary Press Series, Canadian History and the Environment. Um, I've felt for some time that it's time for Niche to have a journal. This is a thriving intellectual community. It does a very good job of communicating the relevance of environmental history to the public. And, um, and like Jennifer said, the, the approach that has been used, the open access approach, works so well for, for this community. Very different than what we do at um, Urban History Review, which is a, an older journal that's been around for some time and has uh, a history to it. And uh, with, with, with Peach, we have um, a, a blank slate to create something that's right for us without having to deal with the fact that there's something that already exists. Yeah, that's a really good point. We, uh, that's maybe the thing I find most exciting about this new project is that we don't have any legacy obligations to, you know, publish a quarterly journal. We can choose our own publishing schedule um, and we can build it from the ground up, which is which is more or less what we've done uh, with the development of Peach here. Um, Another thing I, I'm, I'm interested in, in terms of future development of this publication, is the kinds of papers that we hope to see. Um, we've put out a call pretty broadly for um, any scholarship that uh, addresses three the intersections of three key areas of concern for, for our publication. Uh, that is the uh, intersections of nature, society, and the past. Um, and that's quite broad. So in my view, that's a, an invitation to scholars more broadly in the environmental humanities and the environmental social sciences. Yeah, indeed, I can see. Um, and, and that is another way of expanding uh, Nisha's readership through this series. So we can we could use Nisha as a foundation for the series, but we can also use the series to to tug Nisha into into other forums. And we've seen this happen in some edited collections in the environmental humanities that bring together an interdisciplinary group of scholars from history, English, other humanities disciplines into an edited collection. And so I hope that Peach can be something like that, um, but on an ongoing basis, a regular interaction among scholars from multiple disciplines. And of course, from Nisha's perspective, our, our primary um, scholarly audiences have been history and geography. Yeah, indeed. Um, 
and you know given things like at least at york the the intersections between environmental studies are coming together i think you know that's a good indication of of opportunities to to broaden our thinking there one thing that's great about niche though is that um, new scholars being environmental um, studies scholars are um, quite open to working with people in different fields and I've appreciated the fluidity uh, with which these scholars are um, interested in working with people in other fields and work, willing to work not just on projects with them that are edited projects, but interested in working on, um, on uh, um, collaborative projects with them. Now, I wonder if we can take a moment to talk a little bit about our distribution goals for the papers that we're going to publish uh, in uh, in papers in Canadian history and environment. And, and Jen, I wonder if you can start us off again here by letting listeners know a little bit about how these papers are going to reach readers. Yeah, I mean, certainly one of the one of the things I think that we're all so excited about is the the easy distribution, the you know, relatively speaking, of of getting this material out, having it um, easily shareable through the niche website um, and through social media. The fact that um, we can create a way that that. I think there'll be a quicker turnaround for for authors seeking to see their work published um, quickly and have uh, not only easy mechanisms for sharing work digitally, but also for reader response. And that that's one of the things I'm excited about that we can have uh, kind of immediate commentary action um, through these papers that readers can can place comments. There can be an online dialogue right within that kind of um, you know the forum that the paper is published within. And I think this is one of the, the things that this series um, offers authors that publishing in a traditional journal doesn't so much. We've, many of us have published in a journal that we consider to be a prestigious journal. Uh, we're very proud of what we published only to find that nobody cited it or maybe read it. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, one of my pet citations is an article that was published in the top journal 10 years ago. And it's funny to see that over the last 10 years, the only person who cited it is me, um, probably because I'm the only person who's cared to, to read it, even though it was in a top journal. Um, what we offer uh, scholars who submit to Peach is um, the ability to publish papers that are more than 10,000 words. Sometimes you have a paper that's more than 10,000 words. You wonder where you're going to send mm -hmm. it. Papers that, like Jennifer said, you went out quickly, but perhaps most importantly, papers that you want to see receive the attention of the niche social media machine, which I must admit is being sort of an outside member of, of niche, I'm a political scientist, I am in awe of. It's amazing, the website, the, the Twitter account, the, the, the energy that goes into promoting the, the work of um, Canadian uh, history scholars, it's is quite amazing and very special and, and quite unique. And I should emphasize too, when we talk about quick turnaround, I mean, we, we still have this um, very rigorous process of peer review where we, right. where we might have um, the ability to speed things up a little bit is in the production end of things um, because we're, because of the, the online form for these materials. And 
the other thing I, I would add to this conversation, of course, is the and it, maybe this is another question that you you plan to emphasize, Sean, but just the uh, the ability to to publish multimedia um, um, components within within your papers, so that so much of the work I've done, I've had just an amazing number of images that I would have loved to have shared and really was limited by, um, you know, the, the existing publication forum for that. And that we could publish not only images, but, but moving images. Yeah, I, I did want to talk about that. That is something I would like to see um, in this series going forward. And we'll see it in the first paper um, that's going to come out uh, later this month. Uh, but uh, one part of the digital turn or the transition to digital history has been the digitization of records and the use of machine-assisted analysis, or I should say those are two parts of it. So we've got scanned records in archives, and we've got software that can help us handle the load of those uh, the volume of those scanned records. But another side of this is the presentation of research findings. And as we are able to um, use and manipulate historical data digitally, we can also come up with better ways to present our arguments digitally. And a print platform can't necessarily present that. So for example, as Jen, you said, moving images, audio, data sets, interactive maps, and other interactive web elements can all be displayed in HTML in ways that can't be displayed on the printed page. So um, I'm hoping to see scholars uh, use that in uh, papers in Canadian history and environment to their advantage to be able to present their arguments, their analysis, and their ideas in new ways um, uh, so that we're not just replicating what a print journal uh, looks like, but we're actually producing something new. Yeah, and we, we talked a little bit about the length of papers and that, you know, Owen, you mentioned if you have a longer piece, this might be a good venue for it. But I think on the other side, too, if you have a shorter piece that doesn't quite fit the standard journal um, format, that this might be a, a great venue as well for thinking about a short theoretical piece or something that might just shift the dialogue a little bit. Absolutely. And then again, connecting with that community that can provide you the response that you maybe aren't getting from other publications um, in terms of feedback via online social networks or commenting directly uh, on the site. Um, now, with that said, uh, as much as I've been thinking about what we want to be new in a publication like Peach, I've also been thinking about what we want to retain in terms of the values and practices of traditional scholarly publishing. And to me, one of the most important parts of that is peer review, uh, which we have a double-blind peer review process for this publication, and permanency. Uh, and by that, I mean the longevity of these publications. As Owen said, uh, he you know, has this publication that he's cited, and it's been a decade since anyone cited it. But we all know that scholarship lives on for much longer than the the short window in which it was published. And so permanency has been really important for how we set up the infrastructure for this publication. So we have a partnership with York University Libraries to permanently store and archive all papers in York Space, the digital repository for York University, um, so that the uh, articles are available uh, in perpetuity, regardless of whether or not this publication lasts, uh, and that they're indexed properly so that people can search them and that their citations can be um, indexed for metrics uh, analysis as well, which is pretty exciting. Glad you pointed that out, Sean. 
this may seem um, somewhat unusual to people who are accustomed to publishing in traditional journals, but in 10 years, we're going to look back and say that there was nothing terribly unusual about what we're doing now. And, and we were uh, a little bit ahead of things that traditional journals have to change. They have to adapt. And what we're doing right now is so exciting to somebody like me who, who edits a traditional journal because we're going to do a lot of the things that I think that we need to do at Urban History Review. And it's, we're going to be able to do them without the, the, um, the impediments that go along with having a longstanding publication that has certain ways of doing things. So listeners can check out uh, Papers in Canadian History and Environment over at the Niche website at niche-canada.org slash piche, that's P-I-C-H-E. Uh, Owen and Jen, thanks so much for telling us more about, uh, about this new publication. I'm so excited. Pleasure. Later this month, Papers in Canadian History and Environment will publish its first paper, titled Magical Regionalism, Canadian Geography on Screen in the 1950s by Matt Dice and Jonathan Payton. To learn more about this forthcoming paper, I spoke with the authors. I'm Matt Dice. I'm an associate professor of geography at the University of Winnipeg. And I'm John Payton from the University of Manitoba, where I teach in the Department of Environment and Geography. Well, Matt and John, thanks for joining us to tell us a little bit about your article that will be published with Papers in Canadian History and Environment called uh, Magical Regionalism. Um, and your article focuses on three 1950s National Film Board of Canada films starring a character called Tijan. So I wondered if we could just start by having you explain to us what the Tijan films were. Sure. These are a series of productions, like you say, that came from the National Film Board in, in the 1950s that chronicle the adventures of a, a, a young boy, to various parts of Canada. And what he does when he arrives in, in these places is learn about the different things people do. In, uh, one movie is about logging camps, another movie is about farming in Western Canada, and uh, the third and final movie is about um, hard rock mining in Northern Canada. Uh, but there's very unique aspects to the films as well, which is that, uh, for one, the, the boy, Tijan, he... Uh, travels around on this immense white horse and he's wearing like fur trade era clothing. Um, so the the figure Tijan is actually uh, based on an earlier uh, French-Canadian folklore uh, figure of, of legend, but he's being updated for the 1950s and he is, is made for all of Canada in this instance. And the other remarkable thing about him is that he's endowed with these uh, Superbirds or magical abilities as well, and so each time he goes to one of these parts of Canada to to meet people and to, to learn about what they're doing there, he's also uh, helping them solve problems at these sites using his tremendous strength or his speed, and he he's able to work alongside them and and oftentimes work along the the machines that they're using uh, using his physical strength. So uh, these are made for, for children, obviously. There's, there's a source of adventure and, and humor in the films that uh, 
made them actually really popular from the 1950s onward. Yeah, part of what makes Tijan so interesting is that uh, his adventures can be read in so many different ways. Um, so Matt is talking about uh, how Tijan travels to all these different resource locations, and so uh, his kind of his adventures can be read as um, as kind of allegories for the changing uh, changing resource transitions that are going on in the different regions of Canada. They can be. Uh, read as as uh, you know simple film scripts to kind of try to understand um, the cultural innovations uh, and cultural interventions that the NFB was trying to to um, place into the minds of Canadians. Um, uh, they can. So yeah, I want to pick up on that, Jono. Um, uh, readers can actually watch these films um, if they go and and look at your article on on the niche website. They'll see the films embedded there. They're about twenty minutes a piece, and and the two of you have gone through these films and you've kind of analyzed them and performed a, a deep analysis of these three films. So I wanted to follow up and ask you what you what you found. What was your main analysis of the Tijan films? The idea of this article was to borrow from. Uh, insights in environmental history and historical geography to look at a, uh, a an unconventional type of source material, which would be films. And the, we don't want to um, overly characterize uh, how films are are typically viewed, but the, like rather than analyze the the plot and the content of the films and read them in a uh, cultural studies kind of modality. We work in this article to bring forth the context of the 1950s. Uh, it's important to consider that the the mandate of the NFB during this period was to uh, provide a, a kind of national message to Canadians by interpreting Canadian life to Canadians. And so they fit in the margins between documentary films about what's transpiring in the country, but there's a huge amount of license granted to the authors of these in terms of how they can interpret and present and, and tell those stories. But then the other thing that we, we do in uh, setting up our analysis of the films is determine how it is that Canadian school children, that are the primary audience of, of this material, would have interpreted the things that they see on screen. And as Jono said, where Tijon arrives is primarily these, these resource regions. And so what we turn to is the discipline of geography. Um, especially in the 1950s and 60s, this would have been the academic or, or elementary school area where children would have learned what, not only what is a mountain, but what is its importance to the, the wider country of Canada. Not just what is a river, but how do rivers uh, you know, help facilitate the Canadian economy and so on. And so there's this deep tie in geography, both between the physical environment and how the landscape can be considered productive. And there's also a, a really important tie there as well between seeing the physical nature of Canada as somehow amounting to the identity of the of the nation itself um, and there's a especially in terms of these different resource regions that we uh, see Tijan visiting there's 
an implicit tie between the types of work people do, whether they're a farmer or whether they're these um, at the lumbering camps in, in the boreal forests of eastern Canada, and, and that and their, their very identity as Canadians sort of being formed out of the work that they do. And that was an important message in geography as a discipline. And so we take those contextual and uh, situational aspects of the 1950s and, and bring them to the film to analyze what the meaning would have been for, for children who are witnessing then. And the, the other thing that, that we can emphasize from an analytical perspective is along, alongside that pedagogical, um, pedagogical aspect that geography, discipline of geography is providing, there's also, um, you know, what the films allow us to do is to, to, to kind of center an analysis both on this charismatic, impish, uh, weirdly powerful little guy who travels through uh, the resource regions of Canada, but it also allows us to place the environment at the center, at the center of a, of a filmic analysis, um, which then presents a whole bunch of other analytical possibilities. Um, that environmental historians will be familiar with, but that, that, that we think the discipline of geography um, in, its, in, its, in its current formation has some interesting things to say about as well. So I'm curious how the two of you found Tijan, what drew your attention to him? And then after watching these films, what, what you saw as being significant for Canadian geography well, I, and Canadian uh, history? Matt found the films first. I think you found them uh, looking for uh, films for teaching, eh? Yeah, it was it was real happenstance. I was teaching a course on uh, prairie landscapes at third year students here at U Winnipeg, and I simply needed to fill uh, a bit of time, and so I was you know, frantically searching online through the NFB archives for something to to discuss, and I came across this one that Tijon goes west, and it was actually it it wasn't just discovering the film itself, but it was actually the the reaction of the the students in the class to the films that I think prompted the, the way in that, that Jono and I followed in this paper. And that's the, it's the, the, the sense of uh, naivety that one recognizes in these types of films. Because uh, as Tijon travels around Canada and goes through all these adventures, he doesn't, he doesn't talk, none of the characters talk, it's all narrated by a, an off-screen voice that has that deep resonant tone of the, the 1950s and it sort of assures you that all these people are happy and everything is going well in Canada and there's this real underlying belief in the the sort of future of the nation and the the idea of um, the assurance in the changes that the, the country is is undergoing, and as environmental historians, you'll recognize clearly that that is mirrored in the the faith in in modernity and and high modernism, and some of the belief in the ability of planners to control nature or to uh, design infrastructure that facilitates progress in a nation that has been so thoroughly critiqued by uh, by many academics recently, and so. You know, on the other side of, of that 1950s, we look back at them and, and you know, the students laugh and think these films are hilarious. But I think in, in that laughter, 
you have to ask yourself, well, like, why, why do they seem so different? What's the nature of the naivety that the world of Tijan seems to express? And we know so much better that like, what is really coming is actually, um, in, in many ways, the kind of breakdown of the world that he's, he's traveling through. And so our research and analysis really tried to resolve that uh, question of, of the gulf. Like, why, why is it so easy to look back and, and laugh at so many of these NFB films of the, of the 1950s? Yeah, well, just I'm I'm just thinking that as a as a kind of book into your story about finding them, uh, finding the films uh, while teaching a third year course. I I just used one of the other films, uh, Tijon, The Land of Iron, uh, which is the last film from 1958, uh, where he goes to the uh, iron mining district of uh, Northern Quebec, Labrador, uh, Borderlands, and uh, I used it in a a fourth year graduate seminar where I was teaching. a week on resource cultures and extractive economies uh, using work by people like Emily Cameron and Arne Keeling and John Sandlos. Um, and uh, so I showed the film and it became, you know, the students had, at, the, at first blush, they had the same reaction. They were laughing a little bit at, at the kind of the, the goofy things that Tijan does. And, uh, but it also became a great cipher for talking about some of the, the, the complex uh, resource cultures um, and resource politics that emerge in that moment of transition in the 1950s and 60s. So uh, in this film, um, there's some, the film says uh, some really interesting things about labor politics and it says some really interesting things about, um, about the gender dynamics of, of, of resource exploitation. And it says some really interesting things about, about the relationship between, uh, between prospectors and these kind of nascent mining economies and indigenous peoples in the north. Um, and students were able to latch on to that. And we had some pretty productive conversations that went beyond what, what you know, the 20-minute Tijon movie told us, but um, um, made some, we made some analytically interesting inroads into many of those different topics. And listeners can find the full paper with all of the analytical inroads. Uh, it's called Magical Regionalism, Canadian Geography on Screen in the 1950s. And it can be found over at the Niche website at niche-canada.org in our Papers thanks in so Canadian much, History and Environment series. Uh, Matt and Jono, thanks for joining us and telling us uh, about your new paper. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Jennifer Bennell, Owen Temby, Matt Dice, Jonathan Payton, and me, Sean Karaj. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast with your favorite podcast player, and leave comments. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past. Nature's Past.